Today's talk is going to be on the three characteristics. If you've been to a meditation retreat, you've probably heard of them. The teachings on impermanence, suffering, and not-self. And the logic of how they fit together. You often hear that whatever is impermanent or whatever is inconstant, whatever changes, involves stress and suffering. And whatever involves stress and suffering must not be the self. And just listening to that set of statements in the abstract there, it's not all that compelling. You can think of lots of things that you would identify with that are changing and not necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily things that you would like, not like to identify with. In fact, most of us, when we hear the teachings on change and impermanence, tend to fall back on our old folk wisdom of how to deal with change. Um, which comes in two parts, one in terms of consuming change. When things are changing and they're going in a way that's not particularly good, you can always take comfort in the fact, well, if they're changing, then if they're not good, then eventually they will change into something good. So you sort of hold out for the time being. If they're going well, you learn how to take advantage or learn how to get the most out of things before they change, knowing that if it's going to change someday, you might as well get what you can out of it before it turns into something else. This attitude might correspond to what someone once called the third and a half noble truth, which is that suffering is manageable. <laughs> change is manageable. We can handle it. If, it's, if things are bad, we can wait for it to change. And if they're good, we can enjoy them while they last. <laughs> the other side of this folk wisdom is on what you may call the production side. If things are not going well, the fact that things change means that you can change them. You can work towards what you feel would be a better set of circumstances. But however, the Buddha, when he focused on change, he took, he took that fact of change in a very different direction. And I'd like to reflect a little bit on why he takes it into that other direction, ending up in the teaching that things are, that change are not self. In other words, this focus on the three characteristics, the changeability of things, the stressfulness and things that change, and the not-selfness, has a frame. And we want to understand what the frame is to get an idea of kind of the logic behind the focus. And when you look at the teachings on discernment, the teachings on wisdom, there's a factor in um, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is called mundane right view, which is the beginning level of right view as you get on the path. And it focuses on the, on the teaching of karma, the fact that beings do have actions. We do act. Our re- actions have results, and the re- results are determined by the, the quality of the intention that underlies the act. Now, for the Buddha, this, he, the Buddha said, this is the beginning of discernment. This is the beginning of insight. This is, the stru- this is kind of the foundation on which the teachings of the three characteristics are based. It's to, this particular framework is also developed further in a set of teachings that are called the factors of awakening. The, one of the factors in this, fact, this set of seven altogether is the wisdom factor, and it's called the analysis of qualities, analysis of qualities that are in the mind here in the present moment. And it's the ability to distinguish in the mind what is skillful from what is unskillful. Again, this builds on the teachings of our actions. Certain actions, certain qualities of the mind are skillful in that they lead to happiness. Others are unskillful in that they lead to unhappiness and that they lead to pain and suffering. And the Buddha said the way to develop this factor of of discernment, this ability to distinguish in the mind from things that are skillful, from things that are unskillful, 
is to ask the, the appropriate questions about them. When something comes up in the mind, you ask the question, well, where is this particular mind state, where is this particular action going to lead? What are the results of this action? This is an appropriate question that you ask. In fact, there are many passages in the, in the canon where the Buddha defines discernment as the ability to ans- ask the right questions and then approach them in the right way. So what is the beginning question of discernment? How does discernment get started? What is the question that gets you started off in the right way? There's a passage where he talks about <clears throat> a person going to someone that you feel is wise. And you ask that person, one, what, when I do, do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and, and well-being? And this question is worth taking apart. The first part, what, when I do it, recognizes the fact that happiness in life is going to have, have to come from your actions. It just doesn't float in or float away based on something that you have to do yourself. And you recognize the importance of your actions. In fact, for those of you who were here yesterday when we talked about the five khandhas, one of the basic teachings is that everything that we experience has an element of intention behind it. Either intentions from the past shaping the circumstances that we meet with now, and then our present intentions and how we shape that experience to experience it now and then on into the future. So everything we do has this element of action going into it, which means there has to be effort. There's always got to be effort in what we do. The second half of the question, what when I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. There's three parts here. And if you think about them, you realize that the, my long-term welfare and happiness relate to what the Buddha taught in terms of the f- three characteristics. If something is going to be true happiness, it has to be long-term. It can't be just something that's fleeting and changes into something else. You want something that's really worth the effort that goes into it. And if it's not long-term, then it's not truly happiness. And if it's not truly happiness, why would you want to claim it to be yourself? And so it's in this context that the, the teachings on the three characteristics come. You look at your actions to see what kind of results they give. And if they give only a short-term happiness, which is followed by long-term pain, it's not something you want to do. In other words, we're looking for guidelines for our actions. So if it's not long-term, there's not true happiness. And then if it's not yourself, it's obvious that this is not the ultimate in skillfulness. It's not something you would like to lay and claim because it's not long-term. So the purpose of the practice is to focus on what things will give rise to long-term happiness. And you find the Buddhist teachings on this topic fall into three categories. Generosity, virtue, and meditation. It's by being generous that we take the, the pleasure that we could have gotten from a particular material object and we turn it into the more metal, the pleasure that comes from having that metal quality of generosity in our minds. We create a spacious mind for ourselves. We put ourselves in a position of wealth when we're able to give things away. And in giving away like that, you you develop a longer-term happiness and say that would have come from having a clock like this. Because someday the clock is going to wear down. It's going to be be broken. But if you give it away to somebody, if it is yours to give away... um, (laughs) Don't worry, worry, I'm not going to give this away to anybody right now. (laughs) You have the sense of well-being that comes from from being a generous person, from having that quality of generosity in your mind. In terms of virtue, again, it's the, what the Buddha says, it's a, a gift of harmless, harmlessness to all beings. If you decide that you're not going to kill under any circumstances, you're not going to steal under any circumstances, no matter what, 
you're giving limitless harm, harmlessness or limitless safety to beings around you. And then you yourself have a share in that limitlessness as well. And so instead of the, the momentary pleasure that could come from squashing out a, you know, something or somebody who's in, inconvenient, you get the longer-term happiness that comes from knowing that you're not the sort of person that's going to harm anybody under any circumstances. In this case, your precepts are, are very valuable. You know that if someone were to offer you a million dollars to steal something or to say a lie, you wouldn't do it, which means your precept is worth more than a million dollars. You've got something very valuable, something very, very worthwhile in yourself. We see this even more graphically in terms of the meditation, the well-being and the sense of stability that comes as the mind settles down, has a firm center inside that's not blown around by outside circumstances. There's a very deep and intense sense of well-being that comes from that. And it's a kind of well-being that nothing exterior can really provide for you. The sense of solidity that you have, and no matter what happens outside, you've got this source of happiness that you've developed inside and you can depend on under all circumstances. This is a very worthwhile kind of effort that you want to devote your life to. So basically what the Buddha is saying here is that you know, things in our normal everyday lives are impermanent. <clears throat> and the question is, if they are impermanent, if they change, how do you, how do you make the best advantage of this changeability? So in his recommendation is that you work on practices that do lead to a longer-term happiness. Now, in the course of, work, course of working on these practices, he doesn't yet suggest the teaching on not-self. You notice it's only certain circumstances that he brings out the teaching on not-self. While you're working on generosity, you don't worry about, is there really somebody giving the gift? Is there anybody there who's really receiving the gift? You start thinking in those terms, and it gets very hard to give. But if you have a healthy sense of self that comes around the giving, he doesn't discourage you from developing that healthy sense of self. The same goes with the practice of virtue. The same goes with the practice of meditation. When the sense of self is useful, when it's healthy, you develop it. It's only when you get to the point where you've decided that um, you no longer need that sense of self, that's when you want to start taking it apart. In the meantime, however, there are also events in life that you want to learn how to pry your attachments away from. Because the, the practice of generosity, virtue, and meditation requires that you give up a lot of other things in life. The pleasures that you could have instead of sitting here meditating this morning. You could be out, you know, where? Half Moon Bay, you know, drinking in the breeze. But you decided not to do that. You wanted to find the pleasure that comes from the, find the sense of well-being that comes from the meditation. So this, and on this level, this is where the teaching on not-self is useful. You realize that you know, that's not really mine. It's something that would pass away very quickly. It's not a very good investment of my time. So this is a useful place for the teachings on the three characteristics and things that you realize that you have to let go in order to devote yourself more fully to the practices that give a longer-term happiness. That's one of the basic teachings in the Dhammapada, which we hope Gil's Dhammapada is going to be soon, finished soon is that if you see there's a longer-term happiness that comes from giving up a shorter-term happiness, be willing to give up the shorter-term happiness for the sake of the longer-term. That's a basic principle of wisdom or insight. It's only in your practice of meditation when you, you, know, you get good states of mind, good states of concentration and mindfulness, and even discernment going, then you can start turning, on the, turning towards the teachings of the three characteristics to see if there's a deeper kind of happiness that comes from letting go, either, even of those practices. It's important that you don't give them up, though, before they're fully developed. But you can turn on 
say, the well-being that comes from a state of concentration and ask yourself, is this you know, fully well-being in the ultimate sense? If there's any sense of stress or any sense of change in there, say, so I don't want to identify with this anymore. That's when the teachings and the three characteristics become useful. In the sense of letting go of the attachment to the really refined pleasures that you develop through the practice. And as you work on that, then you find that the mind ultimately opens up as in its ability to let go of those actions to keep, say, the state of concentration or the state of mindfulness going. And when you find that you can let go of those after they've been fully developed, then the mind opens up to something larger. The Buddha calls it the deathless, um, an area where there is no change. Even there, though, he says, uh, he continues to insist that that too is not self. In the sense that they, they say, a meditator, when you first taste that, there can be a sense of strong passion and delight in the deathless. This is something that's really solid and really goes really deep. Um, in order to get you past that sense of attachment, the Buddha reminds you, well, that too is not self, because wherever there's passion and attachment, even if it's to a very worthy object, that passion and attachment is going to prevent you fully from gaining freedom. And so you learn to have an attitude of not identifying with anything that comes up in the course of the meditation. And it's through that act of not identifying that you then you open fully to the deathless, at which point the teachings on impermanence or inconstancy, stress, and not self no longer apply. So it's in the context of realizing that we have to act in order to find happiness in our lives. And then there's the question of what actions are worthwhile. If you work really, really hard to get something and then it only lasts for a few seconds and then it's gone, you realize that that's a poor use of your time. And the fact that you need, if, you're, if you want a good goal in life, and goals are not, a goal is not a bad word, okay? People need goals in their life. They need to have a sense of direction. It's only when you're on a weekend meditation course when you don't want to have goals because otherwise in that hot pressure, high pressure cooker system, you, know, you can blow yourself up with a goal. But in, in long term, in terms of our lives as a whole, we do need to have a sense of direction in our lives. So, so before you choose a goal, you have to be very clear on what is going to lead to a long-term sense of happiness, what's worth the effort that goes into the pursuit of that particular goal. And this is where you see why the Buddha, when he talked about things being impermanent or changing, he used an unusual word. He said anicca, which often we translate straight as impermanence. But the Pali meaning of the term is not impermanence, it's inconstancy. Something that is inconstant is undependable. Would you want your happiness to depend on something that's undependable? Well, no. That's what he's meaning when he says anicca. Things are undependable, things are inconstant. So if you're going to look for happiness, that's not where you want to look. You, in the, before you get to the ultimate happiness, you learn there are certain actions or certain practices that are impermanent, but you use them you make use of them in terms of the practice of generosity, virtue, and meditation as means to get you further and further along so that, on the one hand, there is a sense of well-being, of deep and long-term sense of well-being that comes with these practices, but also eventually they open the mind up to a space where it can start looking deeper. The kind of mind that is used to being generous, the kind of mind that's used to being virtuous, the kind of mind that is centered and concentrated finds it e easier to open up and say, is this the ultimate happiness or is there something more? So in that case, the search for happiness is not a neurotic desire just to get away from your problems of life, but it's a, it's a more mature sort of survey and consideration of the well-being that you've been able to develop for yourself and say, could I do better? Is there something better or something far further along than this? 
So it's important that you see these teachings on the three characteristics in this context, in the pursuit of a reliable, dependable happiness. And that you get the mind into a state where it has a sense of well-being, and then ultimately you take these three characteristics and you take even that sense of well-being apart. So that it's not a neurotic kind of aversion saying, I don't like things that are changing, I don't like things that are stressful. But it's simply a quest for something that's even more refined, something a higher, more worthwhile form of happiness that can really act as a goal that we can hold to in the course of our lives. So those are my thoughts on the topic. I was wondering if there are any questions, any discussion. My teacher used to give one sentence Dharma talks, and so I have trouble speaking more than 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> yes. Buddha once said that all of his dharma is pertinent. Whatever the time, there's always there's always a dharma that's appropriate for it. <clears throat> but your, your remarks touched on, I think, an important thing that many of us feel that you know, when the world is miserable, we don't have any right to be happy. And perhaps happiness is the word, wrong word to use here, but we do need to sen- develop a sense of inner well-being so that our contribution to the world can come from a position of strength rather than from a position of desperation. We can sympathize with the pains and the sufferings that are going on out there without having to pile them on ourselves. If you have a strong sense of inner well-being, then you can act in a way that's, one, you're not being threatened by the situation outside. And then secondly, you have more, really you have more to offer. So I think it's an important part of the training that we realize that that's, you know, one of the things we owe to the world is to develop a sense of well-being within ourselves. Yes. When I, when I hear you differentiate uh, on short-term happiness, mm-hmm. I think of your vows and you eat once a day mm-hmm. instead of nibbling whatever mm-hmm. short-term happiness wishes, mm-hmm. and you're celibate. Mm-hmm. How do you think of those issues as facilitating long rather than short-term happiness? And how do you relate them to lay practitioners? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a minefield. teaches about renunciation, it's precisely this issue of a trade-off. That by sacrificing certain things, you find a deeper, more lasting happiness. And it's worth the trade. Um, Some of the trades are more difficult than others. I didn't become a monk because I wanted to be celibate. 
but I found that it became it was an important part of the thing that you had to trade off. If I was going to have the time and the energy and the, and the space, basically, to meditate. I've been spending the past week living in Gill's basement and seeing what you know the, the householder's path is like. <laughs> and I must admit, tonight I go back to the monastery with a very deep appreciation. <laughs> Each of us makes our choices, and it's once you've made certain responsibilities, you have to hold to those responsibilities. But within the context of those responsibilities, you have to see okay, where are the where are the trade-offs that are still that you're still making. And so I would recommend that you know looking at certain short-term pleasures that you have and realizing, okay, this is getting in the way of my meditation, this is getting in the way of the pro- the, my development of generosity, this is getting in the way of my virtue, I better drop those things. It's interesting that the teachings on generosity, virtue, and meditation were directed specifically for lay people. These are areas where you can learn how to make these trade-offs in your daily life. And so it's not just monks that get to do these things, but it's for lay people. <clears throat> I must admit, I'm, I'm very happy I made the trade I made you know, 26 years ago and continue to make it. I don't have to deal with babies spitting up on my pants, says Gillian this morning. <laughs> I get to deal with children after the parents find them impossible. <laughs> But it is an important principle in our lives that we, especially here in America, we tend to think that, and I must admit, you know, the Bay Area is probably the worst in the sense that you know, we can be all things. We can be you know, wealthy, we can be spiritual, we can be physically fit, and all these other things. The human potential movement really you know, got its roots deep down here in the Bay Area. And people tend to be really frenetic when they feel they've got to reach perfection in all of those areas. And it's good that you learn how to turn off a lot of the messages that are coming from the, the media, messages that are coming from even some, some, some pop meditation teachers that you know, tend to teach the, you know, the total perfection movement. Uh, deciding what's really worthwhile in your life and being willing to make the sacrifices to go in that direction. I have a friend who's a, a novelist. <clears throat> she writes novels set in ancient China. And one year... She just published a new novel. Because she teaches at a university, she gets invited around to the alumni clubs to read passages from her novel. And so she has to choose passages that are self-contained. Then you know, the story makes sense within 10, 15 minutes, the amount of time that it takes to read the passage. And in her latest novel, she had a passage in which this young woman is grieving over the death of her mother. And the father has promised up and down he's not going to ever marry again. Well, within a couple of months, he's sent off on some government business to the south, comes back with a courtesan as his new wife. And the girl is distraught. But the courtesan is no fool. She sets about to being a good mother to the girl. And one night they're playing a game of chess. And as they're playing, she's trying to teach her some, sort of some good life lessons. And the lesson she's trying to get across is that if you really want to be happy in life, you have to decide that there's one thing you want more than anything else. And you'd be willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And so the young girl is sort of half listening and half not listening to the lesson as she's playing the game. And she's beginning to notice that her, her stepmother is losing chess pieces all over the board. She thinks, ah, she's a lousy player. 
And so she gets more aggressive. And within a few, mu- few, few minutes, the stepmother goes, checkmate. She's got, she's got the daughter. And of course, the, the chess game is an illustration of the lesson that the mother's trying to teach. And my friend told me that after reading this passage to two or three alumni clubs, she had to stop. Nobody wanted to hear the message. We all want to win at the chess game and keep all our pieces at the same time. So, so think about that. Yes. You um, mentioned one of the precepts, which is "Do not kill," mm-hmm. and you also mentioned that you live in an avocado mm-hmm. forest mm-hmm. monastery. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned, you know, that we could be hiking and enjoying the breeze at Half Moon Bay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like to hike a lot, mm-hmm. and I see in when I'm hiking, a lot of times there's you know little bugs or worms or, mm-hmm. or newts, and mm-hmm. you know sometimes it doesn't seem like it's possible to, to not kill things. Um, you try intentionally. You don't you don't intentionally kill. I mean, there's going to be you know some in, unintentional slaughter going on as people walk around and live on the earth. But it's a very different thing from intentionally making up your mind that you're going to end that newt's life. And that's what the precept is talking about. It's your intentional choices. I guess, I guess I'm also wondering about the choices we make. I mean, say, say we um, drive a car in the summer, and there's, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you drive for an hour, and your windshield is filled with mm-hmm. you know, bugs that have mm-hmm. gotten squashed. How, mm-hmm. how do you decide? Do you decide, well, I, I don't want to drive a car, or do you? Well, you ask yourself, what is your intention in driving the car? And if it's to go out and get all those dead bugs on your windshield, then you don't drive. <laughs> but if it's if it's if it's you know, part of the payback, it's, that's not why you're doing it. Then the precept isn't broken. Yeah. But it also makes you reflect on the fact that you know, as long as you have this life, and, um, there's going to be some suffering involved in keeping in having a body and in maintaining this body, moving it around. Which gives you more an impetus to say, well, is there a kind of happiness that doesn't require having a body or creating a new one? And that's, that's a lot of where the practice goes. The monks have a reflection <coughs> that we're supposed to do every day, reflecting on food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, and the fact that that comes to us through the suffering of other beings. Even if it's vegetarian food, there's going to be suffering for, you know, the suffering for the farmers, the suffering for the distributors, and all that, just in doing the work. Same with clothing, especially now with medicine, you know, all the animal testing that they do on medicines. You realize the amount of suffering that has gone to get this pill to you or get this particular thing. And so <clears throat> you reflect on the fact, okay, why am I taking these things? If And you decide that your purpose in taking food, clothing, and shelter is so you continue in the practice to get beyond the point where you're going to need these things anymore. And so you don't want to take more than is necessary. You don't want to create what the Thais call unnecessary karma karma debts. And then you dedicate the merit of your practice to all the beings who had to suffer because you're you're just a living being. The first teaching they have for young novices is, um, it's a series of questions. What is one? What is two? What is three? What is four? And it's kind of a catechism. You know, the three are the three characteristics and four are the four noble truths, fives are the five hindrances. The interesting question is, what is one? And the answer is, all living beings subsist on food. And wherever there's a living being, there's got to be feeding. And in the process of feeding, both the, the whatever it is that's being fed on, that's, there's suffering involved there, but also the process of feeding itself involves a certain amount of stress and suffering. 
You can't just... When I go camping off in the, the wilds of Utah, I, I, many times I would just like to go and you know, not have to worry about carrying food and carrying all the other stuff that comes from keeping this body alive. But because you can't eat the scenery, you've got to carry the food along with you. It would be, be much nicer if we didn't have to feed. We'd just kind of float around <laughs> go wherever we wanted. So the, the reflection is to keep reminding you that there must be a higher form of happiness that doesn't require this constant suffering. But in the meantime, you, as, as a precept, as a practice, you make sure that you're not going to intentionally snuff out some being's life or intentionally steal, whatever. Anything else? Yes? <laughs> oh, there are lots. Um, usually they become in, in re- responses to questions. Um, now that you pin me down, I can't think of one. Um, one that struck me very strongly was another time when the monastery where I was located was had almost never had any other Western monks. Very rarely somebody would kind of wander through. And there was this one monk who was a student of Ajahn Chah came through. And apparently Ajahn Chah in the evening would sit under his hut and the lay people would come with questions and sometimes if the monks were... your, your meditation was getting kind of dry, there was a little place on the side where the monks could sit and listen to Ajahn Chah's interaction with the lay people. And so one evening this monk came up and he decided he wanted some Dharma talks from John, John Fuang. And so he came up and he lit the mosquito coil and he straightened everything out and sat very quietly off to the side. And John Fuang did his walking meditation and then came up the stairs and saw the monk and said, what are you doing here? He says, I've come to listen for a Dharma talk. And then John Fuang said, okay, the big John, the big teacher is up there in the forest. Go there. <laughs> that was the talk. <laughs> Another time, there was a group of um, reporters from the, one of these monk magazines. Have I told you about the monk magazines in Thailand? <laughs> it's kind of like movie star magazines. You know, the bit, <laughs> they'll have the monk of the month. <laughs> and they actually have centerfolds, but... Um, <laughs> Monks are fully dressed, <laughs> and what these people would do is they would get a group of people together on a bus, and they'd go out to a monastery and make a donation to the monastery, and then hang around and talk to the to the ajahn and turn on their tape recorders and get a dharma talk out of him. Sometimes they would ask him about his life history, and then they would go go back home, and then they would write up what they got from their tapes, and if the, if the life history wasn't didn't have enough miracles in it, they'd throw a few miracles in and <laughs> print this as, as the magazine. Well, one time we've, we got news that they were going <coughs> to excuse me, <coughs> come to our monastery. So the day before they arrived, John Fuang went into Bangkok and told us not to receive the guests. And so they came and they arrived and there was nobody there, except for the, one of the women who lived in the kitchen. And she, she told them that he was, John Fuang was in Bangkok, so they went the next day to see him. And they showed up with their tape recorders and their cameras and everything. And um, first thing they asked him was for his life history, 
Well, the Thai word for life history, Prawat, can also mean police record. <laughs> and he says, I don't have one of those. <laughs> I've never misbehaved. And then they asked if he could teach him the Dharma. He said, okay, I'll teach you the Dharma. So they turned on their tape recorders and he said, today's Dharma talk is one word, Bhutto, which is the meditation word. He said, if you can't keep that in mind, then anything else I might teach you would be a waste of time. <laughs> End of talk. <laughs> there are many other times when he had some sharp and snappy answers for me, but I can't think of them right now. So. <laughs> Thank you very much.